So we are uh, just two messages uh, away from uh, finishing our series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, last week, uh, Will brought uh, our message to us, very thankful for him and his uh, giftedness to teach, his, his passion for the, the Word of God and um, his ability to do that, his willingness to do that. Um, and last week, he talked about how life just isn't fair. Um, life's not fair and how we have within us this sense of fairness uh, that I believe comes from the Lord, right? That God has built into us this idea of justice, of right and wrong, um, of being treated fairly, and how uh, it's confusing and, and infuriating uh, to us sometimes when wicked people live long, successful lives, quote-unquote successful lives, um, how good people maybe um, have their lives cut short or bad things happen to them. Uh, just doesn't seem fair, but he also reminded us that ultimately God is just and he will judge perfectly and that we can only be judged as righteous through Jesus. Uh, so in the past weeks, we've looked at various pursuits under the sun, which we seek meaning or fulfillment in. The two of those messages centered on the time we have in this life and pleasure, respectively. Today is almost a combination of those two, looking at the time uh, in our lives and um, kind of the pleasures of the world and how those things go together. Um, today is kind of a, a more fuller perspective than Solomon usually gives us, um, even though we're going to look at just a few verses. Uh, but in these few verses, we'll see the, the context of both the limitations under the sun and kind of God's dominion over everything because he's beyond the sun. Uh, normally, he just gives us this woe under the sun, right, and how everything's meaningless. Um, and kind of an implication of God's goodness. Uh, so let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> he says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So that's the text this morning, just those four verses. You've probably heard, eat, drink, and be merry. I think I even used that or referenced that when we did the, the pleasure uh, Sunday. It's often followed by, for tomorrow we die. Uh, this quote doesn't come from Solomon. It first appears in Isaiah, but it was adopted by the philosopher Epicurus uh, hundreds of years later and became kind of the motto of Epic Epicureanism, uh, those who follow Epicurus. Um, Basically, this pursuit of pleasure in this world. At face value, it's celebrated as a great way to live life if death is what awaits us all. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the Bible um, tells a different story with this quote. Uh, Isaiah notes that this attitude, eat, drink, and be merry, is really the attitude of the wicked. Those who are not investing in eternity right, or devoting their lives to following God. The highest pleasure they can imagine or dream or hope of is found under the sun. And so they go all in on what the world has to offer. 
Uh, this is not the way, as we discussed previously. And we've been over this uh, in previous weeks, so hopefully we remember that the Christian response is not to go all in on the pleasures of this world in that way, uh, but also not to go to the other end of the spectrum, not to deprive ourselves of pleasure or reject pleasure as evil, as some would say. Uh, we'll flesh out yet again this morning that the Christian response is to celebrate pleasure as God's grace. Uh, and this is our first point. We're to celebrate God's grace. Verses 7 and 8. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 again. It says, eat with joy, drink with a merry heart, always wear white and have oil on your head. That part may not make as much sense to us. Uh, but basically what they're describing, what Solomon is describing culturally then is uh, the, this party atmosphere, okay? We're eating with joy, so we're feasting, we're drinking with merry hearts, we're, we're, we're happy about it. It's not drinking away our sorrows or anything like that. It's a celebratory kind of social party time. Um, and then the wearing white, this was associated with, again, kind of these, uh, these parties, these celebrations, um, having oil on your head, it's like, smell good, right? Put some, put some cologne on. Uh, so today it'd be like saying, hey, dress up, smell good, uh, and live life like it's a party all the time. Uh, and why? Because God has already approved what you do. Now, note, big flashing disclaimer here, right? This is not a license to do whatever you want, party all the time, um, but to say that God in his grace has blessed us with such good gifts to enjoy that we should enjoy them and we should never lose sight of his grace towards us. So when Solomon says, oh, may you always wear white, he's not saying literally put on your you know, finest party clothes every day, but this attitude of going through life as if I have joy in my heart, I'm celebrating the grace that God has shown me and he's given us good things to enjoy. This is usually not um, the kind of sentiment we get from Solomon, right? So it's kind of a an upbeat here um, in our series, or at least in his tone. In the framework or perspective of living in light of eternity with devotion to God, Solomon is telling us to celebrate these good gifts that God has given us. And the warning we've been over tons of times to not elevate the gifts above the giver, right? That this party, this enjoyment, the, uh, the white clothes and the oil on our head, the drink, the food, that is not the ends, right? Those are the means, those are the reflection, those are gifts that point us to the giver up above. So where Epicurus would say, live it up for tomorrow you die, meaning this is as good as it gets, it's not getting any better, it's only downhill from here, Solomon is saying, live it up under the sun because there are far greater pleasures and graces to celebrate in the next life. So much greater that these don't compare. They're just wetting our appetites for what God wants us to experience in Him. Uh, anyone here watch any cooking shows? No one? Sure. Yeah, I know we do. Uh, there's a million cooking shows out there now, covering every corner of the culinary universe, right? There's like barbecue shows, and there's probably vegetarian shows, and there's baking competitions, and all these kind of things. Anyway, years ago, uh, I was watching Top Chef, uh, and they were challenged to come up with an amuse-bouche. And I was, I'd never heard of an amuse-bouche before. Uh, but what amuse-bouche means literally is um, mouth amuser or something like that. Um, so it's something to amuse your mouth. 
Uh, and an amuse-bouche is one bite of food. Uh, this is the entire course, the entire plate. It's not like uh, an appetizer, a small appetizer. It's not like a portion of something greater. Like They put all this work and thought into one bite. And what this one bite is supposed to do is supposed to get you excited about what's to come later. Uh, it's not too much. It's not too little. It's just to, like, you know, kind of awaken your taste buds and get your palate excited about things. Uh, I would not be amused by an amuse-bouche, I think. I would be like, mm, no, uh, that would just make me mad. Um, it's not even like a full Costco sample, right? We're talking one bite. Uh, a lot of work goes into it, but it's just this small little taste. But in fine dining, again, it's meant to say there's something greater coming. We're just awakening your senses, awakening your palate. Um, this is, is the enjoyment ratio that we're to adopt when it comes to viewing the pleasures of this world compared to the pleasures of eternity, right? Solomon is not saying, like Epicurus, the pagan, uh, that this life under the sun is our last hurrah. He's saying the joys of this life are an amuse-bouche compared to what God has prepared for us in Christ. That as great as we think this world is, it's one bite that awakens our senses, that awakens our, uh, our enjoyment, that points us to something far greater than we can ever imagine. So celebrate food. Celebrate art. Celebrate music and travel and movies and sports and rest. Celebrate all of God's grace toward us in these forms as various enjoyments that God has allowed us to experience. But as they say, celebrate responsibly, right? God has given us parameters to these good gifts. The Bible talks about sobriety and temperance and idolatry and gluttony and laziness and pride and contentiousness. If we don't celebrate these various gifts in the right ways, then these are the things that can take over. They steal our devotion to God. They deprive God of worship that is due Him. They take our eyes off the giver, right, and focus us on the gifts. But be encouraged. God wants us to celebrate His grace towards us. Secondly, we're to stick with God's grace. We're to stick with God's grace. This isn't the best word, but I needed some alliteration, so that's why I did stick. But uh, what I mean by this is that we're to remain in and invest in God's grace. Uh, stick, again, just had this sound, so that's what I used. But um, Solomon points out here this idea of cultivating and fostering the relationships in our lives that are also graces given to us by God to enjoy. Uh, Solomon says to enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life under the sun. Now, this is directed at husbands to enjoy life with their wives for a lifetime because this is God's design for marriage. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that this principle can apply to other relationships in our lives as well. There's temptation all around us that seeks to drive a wedge between us and the people we love. Sometimes the temptation is really strong. The lies that we're sold are things are better over there. Leave what you've worked for. Leave what you've built into this. All the work, the effort you've put in. It's only downhill. Like things are not getting better where you are. Move on. You deserve more. You deserve something greater. It's this grass is always greener mentality. And if we can recognize them as lies, we'll stay where we are. We'll remain in God's grace 
that he's already shown us. If we value the relationships over the bottom line, we won't leave, right? This kind of devotion uh, reminds me of, of a story I read about now retired NBA star Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, after winning a championship with the Dallas Mavericks in 2011, a few years later, he was offered uh, a $92 million deal from the Lakers and also reportedly from the Rockets to join them in 2014, okay? He rejected both of those offers, and he signed a three-year, $25 million deal, so he's really settling for peanuts here, guys, to stay with the Dallas Mavericks. But why? Why would he do this? In his mind, he didn't have anything else to prove. He probably could have won another championship, maybe, because I think in L.A., I think Kobe was waiting. I think in Houston, Harden was already here. But he stayed with the franchise that he loved and that also had poured into him, had invested in him, right? Through the ups and downs, for better or worse, um, there was just a loyalty there. And I don't think it's a blind loyalty. I think he really enjoyed playing for the Mavericks. I think this is exactly why Solomon adds the disclaimer, whom you love, when he says to enjoy life with the wife whom you love in this passage. He's injecting this reminder to, to dance with the one who brung you, basically. And not just out of some sense of blind loyalty, but because this is the person you love. Maybe there are relationships that you're in where the, the shine has started to wear off, the world has your flesh thinking that you need to get out there, or maybe you're unhappy because you do have a sense of loyalty, but you just aren't delighting in the relationship anymore, so you feel trapped. Solomon's reminder here is you love them. Remember, you love them. So remind yourself of the reasons you love them. Invest into the relationship from a place of love and devotion. You've likely been through a lot together, good and bad. How can you honor that? How can you view your relationships through the lens of, can I better serve and love you rather than what have you done for me lately? If we start to view marriage or any other relationship as transactional, where the goal is, this person makes me happy, right? And then I don't have any obligation if they stop making me happy. Then it's no wonder why we end up with so much dysfunction or broken relationships, broken families. This attitude is way too commonplace today. I remember hearing about a young lady who divorced her husband simply because she, quote-unquote, outgrew him. In other words, he wasn't keeping up with her hopes and dreams and aspirations for what she wanted to do in life. And yes, that would be a cause for conflict, um, for discussion, for uh, we need to work through this and figure out what's going on here, but it is far from biblical grounds for divorce. But in a culture where everything is disposable, and the prevailing message is do what makes you happy and live your truth, why would marriage be any different, right? So Solomon, in his wisdom, wrote this thousands of years ago, to enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. There's another reference to God's sovereignty and grace here. As Solomon says, all the days of your vain life, which were given to us by him. This acknowledgement that we've talked about before, that God is sovereign over time. He's in charge of time, right? And the time we have is a gift from him, is what Solomon is saying. And when he says vain here, we've been talking about how vain is this term for, for meaninglessness. It's this literally means vapor or mist. Uh, I, I believe in, in this 
passage in this context, when he says vain life, he's talking about how it's just brief, this mist that's just here and gone before you know it. Because of the context of enjoying it and enjoying the, the, the grace from God, the pleasures from God, uh, I don't think this is a sense of your life is meaningless. Because why would he say to do these important things if it's so meaningless here? I think he's saying another reminder that our days are numbered. Life is a brief mist, too brief to waste relationships. So count your blessings, maybe literally, like I've suggested before, right? Make a list to remind yourself of how good God has been to you. If it's in a relationship with someone that, that's, that's struggling, then focus on that relationship. What is the good from that relationship that God has shown you through that person? What has God shown you about yourself through that relationship with that person? Things like that. Enjoy life with the people you love. Invest and fight for those relationships. Cultivate them. Stick with God's grace. Our final point today should be a familiar theme to you here at Missio Day because I often talk about how everything in life is grace. This morning I've said that we're to celebrate God's grace. We're to stick with God's grace. And now to remember that we're surrounded by God's grace. We're surrounded by God's grace. Check out verse 10. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And he says this because once you die, your time and your work here on earth are done. It's another sense of urgency rather than futility, right? He's not saying tomorrow you die and your days are numbered, so it's not worth it. Don't worry about it. He's saying there is meaning in life under the sun if you are following God. And so don't waste the days that he has given you. Don't waste the days because you don't know how many you have. They're numbered, but you don't know the number. So this too shouldn't come as much of a shock to us that Solomon is emphasizing the brevity of life once more. But rather than beat that drum again, I want to focus this morning on the idea that the phrase, whatever your hand finds to do, is about being content where you are. It's the idea that there's plenty of work right where you find yourself. The work you are already doing is more than likely the work that God has positioned you to do. It is your unique calling to a place, to a people, or to a purpose that no one else is currently called to. Does God call us away to do other things sometimes? Yes, absolutely. But more often than not, we search for or long for something more epic or more exciting or more fulfilling when God really hasn't released us from where he has us. This principle can also apply to relationships that we just moved on kind of from that point a little bit ago but the same kind of idea flows into this one. And the loved ones that we have and the work we're already engaged in, God has shown us grace. And with marriage, as we just discussed, particularly release from marriage comes with some very steep and serious qualifiers. Now, for some, this call to, to remain in the work that God has, has put you in uh, is, is a call to calm your restlessness. If you're thinking, I, I need something, I'm called to more or greater or more fulfilling or more epic, um, some, some of us need to, like, just, you know, whoa, right? Hold your horses a little bit. We need to stay our wondering eyes. We need to, to stay our wondering hearts. If this is you, I, I came across this article recently from um, Melissa Kruger, who was uh, in the Gospel Coalition um, website, but... 
It gives some practical advice and kind of some questions to ask to assess the desire of your heart. To say, is this something that God is calling me to or is this something that really my flesh is calling after? So I just quickly just want to give you the four questions and if you want to dig deeper into that later, let me know or I'll post it on our Facebook page or something. Um, She says, one, ask yourself, is the object of my desire something God has clearly denied? So this would be our first kind of red flag or just the first stop sign, right? It's kind of like that flow chart. So if it's, if yes, stop pursuing it. If this is something God has already um, just outright denied or condemned. Number two, ask yourself, am I willing to use any means to attain my desire? If we long for something and we start to consider the things that we would compromise or the links we would go to that uh, go against our convictions to, to pursue it, red flag, right? Number three, why do I want what I want? Why am I desiring that? Why do I think that's better, right? Is it me or is God really pushing me towards that? Four, what is my attitude as I wait? If God has really placed a desire on our heart and set us on something, then he will work in us to be patient as he brings it to us in his timing. Um, if we're idolatrous about something, pursuing something we're not supposed to, then our attitude while we wait will not be good. Uh, so those are four questions kind of used to, to assess. If you're, if you're starting to think, I need to move on, I need to go somewhere else, I need to do something different, <clears throat> I'm not fulfilled here. So that's kind of one, one crowd. The other crowd, um, this message is an encouragement that where you are and what you do matters. There have been countless people throughout history, including during Bible times, that have brought glory to God and honored Him with their lives through faithful living and serving, and no one has ever heard of them, right? We don't have a record of every follower of Jesus, every person who followed God. We don't have all their names. These aren't the only people. And so sometimes we think, like, if people don't know our names or haven't heard of what we've done for God, then it doesn't really count or doesn't really matter. And I'm not even saying, like, famously, right? If I'm not known in my community or, or known amongst, what, like if people don't see what I'm doing, does it really count? Yes, it does. Absolutely. If Jesus is enough for us, then, then we can live like that. We, we can serve humbly and quietly and anonymously. If Jesus is not enough for us, we will be tempted to desire more or other than what God has called us to do. So let this be an encouragement. Stop comparing yourself to other moms or other dads or other wives or other husbands or other men or other women. Recognize the grace of God in your life. And wherever you find your hands at work, work with your might. In other words, bloom where you're planted. Flourish where you're found. Whatever sticky phrase helps you to remember this, use that. Acknowledge with a grateful heart all that God has blessed you with. And fulfill your work and ministry. Because one, this is your calling in life. And two, this life is a breath. It's a vapor. Solomon is telling us to make the most of this life with the Lord. To celebrate and stick with the grace of God that surrounds us. To enjoy and extend the grace of God. And not to delay, because our days are numbered. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you um, again for, for your word, the truth of your word, and even just these, these four verses, so, so much uh, truth built into these four verses where uh, Solomon, um, in all his wisdom, in all his pursuits, in all his uh, exploration of meaning and search for significance, has told us, he's told us for, for eight chapters, as we have it divided, that everything is meaningless, a vapor, a mist. And yet, in these verses, he says, enjoy the life that God has given you. The call to follow God, the call to follow Christ, it's not a, it's not a joyless life. It is not a uh, a self-loathing, a self-denying uh, in the sense of there is nothing to enjoy, but that in denying ourselves for the sake of Christ, we find real joy, real fulfillment. That there is common grace in the world that we're to enjoy. That's to, to whet our appetites and remind us that there is a good God who an uh, eternity has far greater planned for us. So yes, enjoy food, enjoy drink, enjoy music, enjoy other people, enjoy travel and creation and all of these things. But know that these enjoyments are not eternal, but that God has pleasure for us in eternity that far exceeds them. So God, you have called us. I pray that we would be a people that, uh, that figuratively, that, that spiritually, that we would. We would be dressed in white all the time, that there would be oil on our heads all the time. As uh, my pastor friend has said, that Christians should throw the best parties. We should be the best neighbors, right? God, would, that we would be a people marked by this. As I was once told, why, you're, you're a Christian, you're a pastor, why do you smile all the time? God, I pray that Christianity would not be marked by um, such, such mourning or, or, or lowliness, but God, that it would be marked by joy. So help us, God, show us how to, um, how to live life enjoying the grace you've shown us. Remind us of, of the, the graces that you have brought to our lives that, that we think we're, we're ready to move on from. Help us to discern whether you are calling us away or whether we have just um, let our hearts grow dull towards those things. Remind us of uh, your love towards us, your grace towards us in those things. Thank you again for this time together. Let me pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.